0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to Homecoming, a podcast that features the diverse stories, insights, and experiences of Asians, Asian-Americans, and Pacific Islanders. I'm your host, Angel Rina, and thank you so much for tuning back into this episode. Um, So today's episode is the first in a three-part series that I'm recording with three different community and multicultural office or CAMD scholars at Phillips Academy, a boarding high school in Massachusetts. And these scholars, who are usually seniors, are chosen each year by a panel from the Community and Multicultural Office at Andover to pursue independent research projects during the summer related to diversity and multiculturalism. And these students work closely with their faculty advisor, and they also write a research paper and make a presentation to the Andover community during the school year and this past year there were six Camd scholars at Andover and all of them worked extremely hard and researched topics from minority-focused casts in television to Asian representation in visual media to the impact of stereotypes and stress on the academic performance of low-income Black and Latinx students. And in this first episode, I'm here with Natalie Shen, a 2019-2020 Camd Scholar whose research project, titled The Effects of Misrepresentation in American Mainstream Visual Media on Asian American Youth, shares the not-often-told history of manipulating cartoons as a means of disseminating racist Asian and Asian American imagery, and her project also analyzes the roles of Asian American characters in mainstream American media. So first, Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. How have you been lately? I've been good. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm so excited for this episode. Me too. So first, um, before we get into the questions, do you just want to introduce yourself and you can talk about where you're from, where you call home, what activities you're a part of at and outside of Andover, and really anything else you want the listeners to know about you?
1: Sure, I'd love to. So I'm Natalie Shen. My PGPs are she, her, hers, and I'm a graduating senior from Phillips Academy Andover. Um, but I was born in Long Island, New York, and I identify as a first generation Chinese American. So on campus, I co-led Asian Society for two years and was a part of Asian Women Empowerment, and I also danced uh, as a member of June, which is our K-pop dance group on campus, and I was a proctor awesome so i
0: am super excited to talk to you about your research and your presentation and i was actually super lucky because I was able to watch your presentation when you gave it at the end of April because it was over Zoom. And I'll ask you, oh, I'll probably ask you a little bit more about how that was like too. Um, but you just did so well in that presentation and it was so interactive and you made the content so digestible for people. And like, for me at least, like it made me think so much more deeply about how, you know, like, how powerful the American media is. And you also had like such a great and supportive crowd. There were like over a hundred people who came, like which is incredible. So all around, like I was super, super impressed. Um, So I know that in the beginning, I sort of briefly summarized what your research covered, but would you be able to tell me a little more about your research? Um, Because I just wanna hear it sort of in your own words and what exactly, were you seeking to find and what did you end up learning or uncovering? Um, And I know like those are big questions so you can sort of briefly summarize since I'll be asking you more specifics later.
1: Well firstly thank you so much. Your words are so sweet. I'm honestly so honored. But yeah, I was really shocked about how many people showed out as well and definitely the Zoom experience um, was something we can talk about later. But yeah, I'd love to talk more about my research. So My paper uh, essentially was uh, me researching a lot on the history of cartoons and propaganda, which utilized visual cliches and other kinds of stereotyping. And that was my basis for the later half of my analysis on modern forms of Asian and Asian-American representation in cartoons, graphic novels, and animated movies. So I first looked into Claire Jean Kim's racial triangulation theory, kind of as a means to recognize that Asian and Asian-American history has constantly been in relation to whiteness and blackness in this country. And that was meant to bring the Asian diaspora into America's traditional racial dialogue from the get-go of my research. And Then I looked into the formation of Orientalism, and you can see this rhetoric of Orientalism, or otherwise more commonly known as the Other, used a lot during Yellow Peril in the 1870s, which continued through anti-Japanese sentiment during World War II. And then I looked into the storytelling elements of animation and identified what of the art form uniquely visualizes racism, um, which is something I can totally expand upon later, but then I was able to apply this historical knowledge of racism being tied to the origins of animation as an industry in this country to analyze a bunch of kids shows that I grew up watching. So whether that be Finnish and Ferb or The Fairly Parents*, Big Hero Six, I also read the novel American Born Chinese, and a lot more. I think numerous times in my life when I saw a stereotypical Asian character on my TV screen, there was something off or uncomfortable about that. And I think I was seeking to articulate why I always felt that way. And what I ended up finding is this rich history that specifically tied the animation industry to the visualization of racism. And I think that was wild to me because once I had tangibility in my thoughts, I was then able to better understand the content that I consume on a daily basis. And that sort of consciousness when absorbing media is really important. And I think a lot of people are realizing that too in their own ways right now. Amazing. Thank you.
0: Um... I also know that applying to be a Camde Scholar is like this entire process that sort of starts like a year before you actually present to the Andover community. Um, So why did you want to be a Camde Scholar in the first place? And how slash why did you decide to focus on the American media's portrayal of Asians as your research topic?
1: Honestly, I remember applying super last-minute because I was still unsure of myself and my scholarship at that time, but it was such an amazing opportunity that I just did not want to pass it up, and I always wanted to do this sort of in-depth research, and luckily I was chosen. So it really goes to show that it's so important to, to just try and put yourself out there. Art, personally, has been my language before I could speak English, So. It was just a really important part of my life. And more recently, I was getting into animation as my, own form of art, as my own form of art expression. But I quickly realized the nature of its potential can be quite detrimental. So mainstream media, I noticed, was consumed at such an incredible rate. And it was particularly interesting to me that um, American media's portrayal of Asians in cartoons, graphic novels, and animated movies specifically targeted children. And I was really interested in how implicit bias and racial identity formed among young people through these forms of media. Um, There was an initially large section of my work, honestly, that I wanted to dedicate more towards the development of racial identity in children. But in total transparency, there was just so little research conducted on Asian Americans and Asian American children that I couldn't dive into that idea more. And I mentioned this to show just how much more scholarship is really needed, especially in the Asian and Asian American field. And I think that's what really encouraged me and I think should encourage a lot of people in pursuing their own research because you should always feel empowered to do so. Um, Because chances are your scholarship is actually really integral in its contribution. So I did find some interesting stuff about the internalization of villainization of POCs from animated media, Um, so that was interesting. But this project for me was really to try and grapple with the normalization of racialized messaging in our media. And I felt like art um, has this really amazing capacity to carry meaningful messages. So I wanted to explore all of that in my research paper. Awesome. Yeah, I know
0: that, at least for me, like. I was always super into art and media, but I never realized like how powerful it actually could be until, you know, the first part, the first time was probably when I took um, Asian American literature and film my senior year at Andover. And that like opened my eyes. I was like, wow, like media is so powerful. And also there's like this large history of sort of, you know, the racialization of Asian Americans and just how they're portrayed so negatively in media. And your presentation also just sort of opened my eyes once again to that. Um, So I know that you did the bulk of your research last summer. Um, So what exactly did your research consist of and any moments during your research process that like really stood out to you or
1: were particularly like mind blowing? I think my research consisted a lot of reading and a lot of watching my chosen media forms. And I also read a lot of reviews and analysis because I wanted to expose myself to a variety of different opinions. I think what really stuck out to me was that the golden age of animation uh, really coincided with World War II. And that told me essentially that animation as an industry in its prime was creating overtly racist content, which undeniably was being presented to millions of American households. And during World War II, as a lot of us know, the anti-Japanese sentiment was really high. And um, the government actually saved Disney and a couple of other industries from bankruptcy. So there is this um, connection of capitalism or money behind these industries as well that was really interesting to me. I think before this realization um, in my research, I felt like I was splitting hairs to create connections between animation and this act of disseminating racist imagery towards children. But history literally proved to me that these ideas are very much interconnected and almost indisputably so. So uh, that was really cool. And it was like such a breakthrough in my research. I think another more personal thing that stuck out to me was reading American-born Chinese for the first time. I'm not going to spoil it if people want to watch it, I mean, or to read it. But uh, for me, it really reminded me of myself before high school. When I was younger, I was grappling a lot with being in a predominantly white space. And the few Asians that I was around uh, really tried to assimilate into white culture. So this book really brought me back into my old mindset and kind of made me reflect of the different experiences that I've gone through to be who I am right now. Awesome. Um
0: yeah, so like you mentioned before, in your research you looked at Claire Jean Kim's uh racial triangulation theory. Um, and actually like that was the first time I had ever heard about the racial triangulation theory, which is pretty crazy because I feel like it's it's like a pretty important framework to think about race. And like I, I had heard of the idea of like Asians being the perpetual foreigner, but yeah I, I, I had never heard of that concrete theory before so that was really cool um, and I know that another big part of your historical analysis was like the orient and the formation of this idea so can you sort of summarize do- those two theories slash ideas and like how that historical analysis sort of set the foundation for the rest of your research on visual media?
1: Yeah, of course. It was actually Karen Sun that introduced me to uh, Claire Jean Kim's racial triangulation theory. And I, too, I feel like um, a lot of other racial theories never put Asian Americans in American history. And that always was difficult because um, when you talk about a white and black dichotomy without realizing that there are so many other ethnicities and other races in between that are helping um, set that dichotomy in a concrete way it's uh, actually really difficult to understand where we place ourselves. So being able to stumble upon this really helped me um, form my whole argument. So the racial triangulation theory essentially argues that Asian Americans have been racially triangulated in relation to whites and blacks. um, Or in other words, historically, Asian Americans have been utilized as a political tool to further the oppression of black people, which ultimately reinforces white dominance. Um, And it's triangulated in relation to relative valorization and civic ostracism. So relative valorization, I think, more modernly can be thought of as the model minority. So in which when it benefits a dominant group, um, Asian Americans are relatively valued more or relatively praised more. um, And this, like, allows for the perfect complacent minority to create difference and division amongst minority groups. And then civic ostracism is when... Uh, a group is just indisputably foreign and can never belong in American culture. And just the idea of relative praise or the model minority and the alienation of Asian people really go hand in hand. And I think Jungwoo actually said this in a previous episode, but it's really part of our Asian history and it's really important to recognize that. Um, And that kind of leads to Orientalism because Orientalism is a genre of reoccurring cliches um, that exaggerate and distort the differences of cu- the culture of Asian-Americans in relation to white America. So Orientalism is juxtaposing the Orient um, or Asian-Americans against the self or like, white Americans. And this, in effect, allows for the self to define the Orient as they wish. And that makes them uh, kind of reduced to the level of being manipulated as objects. The Orientalism is never uh, about the other or the Orient. It's actually who perceives the Orient, um, and it's not a creation of a separate identity. So Ultimately, it's a really dehumanizing experience, and I think these ideas all connect to the rest of my research because racist caricaturing is, in effect, a really dehumanizing process. And I'm arguing that current representations of Asian characters are not the self and they are not nuanced people, but rather they're literally objects used to make the main character, who's often white, look better. And media, I think is just not portraying POC people, they're portraying objects. And this relates to racial triangulation because that whole whole contract basically highlights differences to instrumentalize people to oppress other people. So, yeah. Well, yeah, that's... That's a lot.
0: And that's like a big thing That's I sort of took away from your um, research and your presentation too, is like this idea that Asian Americans and also other minorities and like people of color, like were ultimately, like you said, like objects and tools to bring about benefit for um, white people and white Americans. And that's like It's like super interesting how, you know, visual media can sort of dehumanize us in that way. Um, Yeah, so like in your research, what were some common Asian stereotypes that, uh, you know, American media sort of portrayed?
1: I think some common Asian stereotypes were what I call like traditional garb. So Asian characters often wearing clothes that are appropriated, which essentially forced them to be a lackluster metaphor of their culture. And I say that in the sense that like their clothes are appropriate, not the person, So already they are forced to be this sort of culture bearer that is not accurate. Um, And that has historical ties to yellow apparel because a lot of white Americans were deeply uncomfortable with the foreign clothing that Chinese immigrants wore. And there's also this frequent accenting on Asian characters and that's meant to perpetuate this idea of otherness or, a lack of education um both stereotypes again stemming from these deep-set xenophobia and meant to further this one-dimensional image of the foreign savage and so world war ii with anti-japanese sentiment portrayed asians as manifestations of danger and that's really seen through exoticism of like yellow skin tone or buck teeth or thick glasses things like that so general appropriation of Asian people and also their culture was mocked a lot in mannerisms. Um, So that was really interesting. In general, um, Disney and Popeye, Looney Tunes, Warner Bros. All of those big names that I recognize today, when I was researching, actually had a really large history of spreading all of that imagery.
0: And also, like how were how were white people portrayed in American visual media, sort of in relation to these Asian characters?
1: really good question I think they were more normalized in general in our modern media there are so many different forms of white characters that it, it mattered less if somebody was a stereotype because there were so many different stereotypes that you could subscribe yourself to one version of yourself and I guess historically what was interesting was there was one episode that Disney put out called Commando Duck and a lot of us know that Donald Duck is not this macho character, but he went into this Japanese military base in this episode and just demolished the entire thing. And I was really confused because it's not his character, but again, it's basically this idea of Japanese characters or Asian characters used to make the main character look better. And it was also very much like white superior complex things like that. Um, but yeah, it was just really interesting because sometimes uncharacteristically so, white people can be the hero of the story and oftentimes POCs are at the expense of that.
0: And were there also like specific differences between how different Asian ethnicities were portrayed or was it more like American media just sort of lumped them all together and you know, put out the same stereotypes about all Asians regardless of their ethnicity?
1: I think what was super disappointing was that most Asian ethnicities were lumped together. So representation of, say, like a Laos character was really similar to an Indian character, which was similar to an East Asian character. And in my research, I used like Asian American more generally. And just the fact that I could generalize and use that term already really speaks volumes on to how we were pushed into one note of representation. So. It is sad that, yeah, a lot of Asians were lumped together.
0: So, kind of moving on to some main points that you made in your presentation in April. Um, Well, okay, so before that, like I know that a big part of your presentation actually um, was you had Kawhi Lai on, Um, And she started Vizlet, which is an organization that seeks to unleash the visual mind of every learner. And during your presentation, she was annotating your presentation slides and she was drawing and emphasizing things. And I thought that was so cool and it fit perfectly into your topic and your research theme. Um, And it was also just super helpful because, you know, the presentation was on Zoom. So why did you want to have someone visually annotating your slides and how did you end up finding Kawhi Lai and sort of get her on board?
1: Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Kawhi is such a cool person and I was really lucky to work with her during this project. I think it was just really important for me to have a part of my presentation basically practicing what I was preaching. And when I was working with Kauai, she taught me a lot about how art is a means to something and not necessarily an end. And I think that in general really relates to the media that I was analyzing because media is a means to a particular kind of messaging and not necessarily an end like we think it is. Um, she also really emphasized the importance of being a visual learner and talked about how art brings everyone along so no one is left behind in a conversation. And I really valued that. Because when I was researching, what kind of bothered me a lot about scholarship was um, that language can be kind of inaccessible at times. And I completely understand that there's uh, a lot of importance of having specific language because the nuance in that is really important to keep and hold. But I think it can also exclude people at times. So there's something about art that as a means, it really doesn't exclude people. So she does some incredible work with facilitating difficult conversations. And I highly recommend, recommend people check her out and like book her. <laughs> but I met her through the recommendation of my advisor, Ms. Lilia Tai hartu who met her at a POC conference. So it just all ended up working out super well.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, she was a great addition. I definitely loved um, how she was super involved in your presentation. Um, so, yeah. Also, one question: Like, how did you translate all of your research over the summer into a presentation that was sort of digestible to the Andover community? And also, like, what was your decision process for deciding like what parts of your research to include in your presentation? And like, did you have to make a lot of changes um, since your presentation was moved onto Zoom?
1: Mm, that's a really quick question. I think, honestly, I had um, a lot of help. Like I um, called Ms. Staff, who was like the head of the KMD scholar process a lot. And she, I would just speak to her for like hours. And I basically ran my presentation to her. And she would kind of tell me how she absorbed my information. And that really helped me be able to structure what people were getting out of it. I think I did change some things in which, like, I had a more more streamlined understanding of like what was my start and finish. So I didn't include a lot of like the more data aspect or the research aspect with children and their uh, analysis of media. But I think that was totally fine because we a lot of my um, audience were already still youth and children. So I felt like that in itself was covering it. I think Zoom was definitely a challenge because. Nobody had had a Zoom conference before um, with a candy Scholar presentation. And there were previous ones that had like cheesecake and like a whole decked out auditorium. So I was really looking forward to that format. And I was just really worried about interaction with my, um, my audience and also just not being there in person. I think there's something about admitting yourself on a stage and showing yourself there. But Zoom was actually really good. And I think we ended up being able to utilize the chat room a lot. And I think it actually allowed people who weren't comfortable speaking in a large crowd in person to share their thoughts more. So I was really thankful of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also, it
0: allowed other people who don't go to Andover anymore like me to come and see your awesome presentation. So I was really happy about that. Yeah. So in your presentation, you brought up specific animated characters like Baljeet from Phineas and Ferb, and you kind of dissected his character and the role he sort of played um, in the television series. So can you talk about what you learned from Baljeet's character? And you mentioned that you had watched Phineas and Ferb growing up. Um, So like, how did analyzing his character make you think differently about him um, and his role in the TV show compared to like how you were viewing him as a child
1: when you were watching the series? Such a good question. I think, so Bel-G was kind of this epitome of what a model minority stereotype looks like in modern media. On the official website, he's described as great at math, passive, and very polite. Um, and the gag is Baljeet is just as smart as Phineas and Ferb is, but they aren't portrayed as nerdy as he is. And actually, Phineas and Ferb are often seen helping him with his problems. But Bel-G really does ra- rarely does the vice versa of that, even though he's equally capable. So it kind of shows me that Baljeet is set up as an object to highlight the natural intelligence of Phineas that like he doesn't have to worry and obsess about grades and he isn't stuttering and he's still helping this character that we see is supposedly meant to be super smart and just interesting because Balji is passive and bullied a lot without complaint and by is always helping him instead he's always kind of second um, which all kind of culminates in this perfect idea of a model minority and there's also other subtle tones about his tone being very high-pitched and um, that being contrasted to his bully who has a much darker pitch and or a much deeper pitch and that kind of serves to highlight his lack of masculinity which is a whole nother conversation about the emasculation of Asian men in media but for me personally I grew up watching it and I actually really love this show so it was definitely a lot to think back and look at the characters I think the sad thing was is that Baljit was not that memorable And I think I, he was lovable in some aspects, but he was also kind of this punching bag character that I saw. And I personally didn't feel very empowered by him. I don't think that as an Asian person, I looked at him and I was like, yeah, that's who I want to be. I was definitely looking more towards Phineas and Ferb and being like, oh, that's who I wanted to be. And so It was really interesting to be able to understand him more as an object now rather than a person that I should have aspired to be because I think it really is lackluster. But yeah, back then I appreciated that he looked different, but I don't think I actually was able to appreciate him that much.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. And I never really thought about what you sort of said about Belgeet being, like, a nerd, but even within that stereotype, there's so many different nuances. Like, you were talking about how, you know, there's this sort of natural intelligence versus um, this idea of a nerd being super negative. Like, it's super interesting to think about how even within this nerd stereotypes, like, there's just so many different complexities um, within that and I think one thing that you also mentioned before that 's a really good point is like I think it is super important to sort of dissect these different TV show and movie characters because I feel like they actually play such big roles in how kids and young people are sort of forming ideas and um, creating their own stereotypes of people based on what they see on t v um, and especially uh you know, stereotypes of minorities. And yeah, for example, like Baljeet, he's just like one character in one TV show, but also it's, it's really important to think about how that sort of reinforces stereotypes that get, you know, like reproduced in our everyday lives. um, And on like elsewhere besides TV, you know,
1: So true. And it's like, because Balji is one of the only Indian male characters that are represented, that it becomes all the more important to analyze him and to understand why he isn't like who, um, who Indian Americans are fully in this country. And I think honestly for me I related a lot to especially like Asian female characters and I talked a little bit about this in my presentation and in my research but there's this trope about um, like Asian women with a purple hair streak being super rebellious and honestly if y'all know me in real life I had um, purple hair for a while and I also a part of it was like uh, reclaiming myself and wanting to find confidence in how I looked but part of it was trying to stand out and um find myself and I think that's really interesting because I did play into that idea and when I was researching it there were like over 16 17 there's probably way more than that but a lot of different examples of Asian women having like a purple hair streak on them and that's what somehow makes them rebellious or somehow makes them different and that really highlights um like American media refusing to create complex characters for us and instead just like slapping on a hair streak. And I think it also goes back to your question of like the uniformity of stereotyping across all Asian ethnicities, because this is exactly that, right? It really perpetuates this idea that Asian women could only be two things. You're either like gentle and submissive or you're rebellious. And it's like, if you think historically, you're either the dragon lady or you're the porcelain doll. And I think that was a dichotomy that I felt like I didn't fit into. And I always tried to grapple with when I was younger. Yeah, I think definitely
0: that is super interesting. And like sort of like I, 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 I had noticed like the purple hair streak being like a thing, but also like I, I never really thought too much about it. But when you brought that up in your presentation and like showed all those examples of all those asian women with purple hair streaks in like movies and tv shows i'm like wow like this is way more prevalent than i had thought um and sort of like you mentioned like i think this duality of how asian women are portrayed like either they're hypersexualized like you talked talked about um in your presentation or they're like not interesting enough so we have to put a streak of color in their hair to make them more interesting and i feel like Like the two categories may seem separate, but also at the same time, I feel like they're both reinforcing this idea that Asian women can't be interesting and complex on their own. Like they have to play into a type um, in order to be interesting and sort of like, I guess, palatable to an American, like a white American audience. Um, Yeah, so I'm really glad you brought that up.
1: Yeah, it's so, yeah, I think you bring about a really good point, like, when creators are trying to make different Asian characters, they in itself create another stereotype, like, they reinforce it again, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um,
0: and, oh, also, like, one thing uh, is, at the end of your presentation, you had this really cool activity that you did where you, um you sort of offered to remake this character and you uh, allowed for audience contributions. And um, yeah, like it it was super cool because you ended up, you and um, your presentation viewers ended up creating this amazing character who was like, it was, like, you, but you were, like, environmental superstar. Um, So, like, why did you sort of want to do the activity of, like, reimagining, like, a better, not a better, reimagining an Asian character that, like, fully represented, that was, like, an example of good representation, I
1: guess. Yeah, I think we can, I think it's actually, for me, it's easier to point out what's wrong rather than create what's right. And I think I wanted to really push myself and my audience to think about now we recognize what's wrong. How can we use our imagination to make things right in our own means? And I feel like oftentimes when we think about change, it's it seems like a very distant thing. But I wanted to do that exercise with everybody to show that every individual has the power of their imagination and everybody can create like us collectively thinking of all these ideas of this new character like that's what they should be doing in like a room of content creators like we should have those voices and we all are capable of using our voices and I think that was really important to to show people and for them to realize that themselves and I I think I talked a little bit about like a framework of um of like how you should analyze a good character and it was like voice appearance uh, development and role and I just wanted to put my framework to the test kind of too so people can feel like it's actually something easy to use Uh, so in general I was just like so honored by how willing people were to jump in and it made me just really excited about the future like I didn't expect the activity to be empowering but in the end it actually empowered me a lot So I think it was just like a really big um, part of my presentation, and I'm glad it was. Yeah, amazing. Um, So kind of looking a little bit broader
0: at the lack of diversity in the American entertainment industry, um, so I think a big thing for us Asian Americans and also for other people of color is that we're just not seeing people who look like us on our movie screens and are on our TV screens. Um so like I know this is a super loaded question. So totally okay if um like we can't encompass every aspect of this. But why do you feel like white people are just continuously cast in Asian roles and like you talked about this earlier, but this idea of whitewashing and yellow face has been a huge part of american me- the American media industry for such a long time and like when you think about it, it's like, oh, maybe yellow face isn't as obvious right now these days, but still, there are so many characters who are supposed to be Asian who are just whitewashed. Like for example, Scarlett Johansson um in 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 Ghost in a Shell and Emma Stone in Aloha. So we just like we keep seeing these examples of whitewashing. So like why do you feel like this is continuing to happen? Like are there just not enough Asian people in the entertainment industry? Like
1: yeah. I that's yeah I think that's really tough and a really good question. I think honestly, very honestly, I feel like if white casters can keep the industry in the hands of white people, they would. And in particular, like voice acting, voice whitewashing is like really prominent because it's so easy to accomplish. And I think, I don't think I'm like trying to hate on on white people if they have a great voice. Like that's not where I'm headed, but it's problematic when white actors take Asian roles and create like an assumed Asian accent onto a character because like inherently that is not accurate representation. And like, in fact, that is the self appropriating the the other or the Orient, which is like Orientalism. And I think in general, Asian people should be allocated spots so they can break into the entertainment industry. I think, yeah, it's really interesting because um, this kind of it makes me think back to relative valorization actually in which like when Asians are in their roles and there are laborers or our workers, they are good. But when they um when the camera is actually shown onto our faces or our voices, suddenly they don't want us there. And I think that's really interesting because again, they don't want um they're not ready for our representation on unlike our power in that sense to be shown. But I think that's all the more why it's so important for us to show our faces and for us to voice our opinions because it is so left field from what um, the dominant culture wants us to do. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know if that answered your question. Oh, no, it's okay. It's a big question. Do you
0: Do you feel like ultimately we have to wait and rely on the entertainment industry to 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 cast more people of color or do you feel like that's just going to take way too long and we started we sort of just need to create our own you know grassroots movement
1: and do that on our own i think it's like a mix of both is where i'm at Because with like the content right now, uh, more and more Asian faces I think are being shown. And I think that's really important because ultimately cartoon, like um, media is an industry, right? And if they see there's a target market for it and they see that people want it, then they will create it, whether that like aligns with their agenda or not. Because I mean, this may be pessimistic, but I really do think um, if you can get into the pockets of people, like if you can, play into the capitalism and like turn it on its head, you are actually benefiting from it. So when there are people like us who really want to see these characters and vocalize that, there's a lot of power within that. And I think bigger companies, even if they have a traditional uh, history of being racist, they have to look at these voices and look at this audience and realize, hey, this is content that we have to create because there are people that want to watch it. And I think that's why like the common voice is really important. And then also, yeah, of course, I think even just in that room of that Zoom call, not really a room, but we all had our own ideas and we collectively were able to create a character and that was genuine and it was from a story and it was from like real experiences. And I think if you're empowered to do so and you feel like you have a team behind you, then you should create your own content because that is like a really genuine way to start something. And in that way you can, um, you can cast your own people behind that. So you can have more Asian people in the industry. So I think it is a mix of just like common consumers being, uh, really utilizing their voices and then people who want to create content and have the means to do so, to do that as well. For sure. Yeah. I think,
0: I'm I'm taking a class right now um on food and migration um in US history. And I think that has led me to think a lot about how important like consumer power can be. Um and like you said, like in the entertainment industry, like yeah, it's this huge industry, but I think at the end of the day, they're trying to cater to their audience and their like consumers. And so we do I feel like we do have a lot of power. Um maybe I'm being too optimistic, but yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so like what what do you feel like the American entertainment industry can do to sort of move move forward in the right direction? Um and sort of, you know, try to represent people of color in more like realistic ways and just like how they are.
1: Yeah, I think I I think I don't mean to like make my framework seem like a really good thing because honestly, it's quite simple. But I think what current content creators are doing right now is they start at like appearance and they stop there. I think they never get into development and they never get into role. And I think that is really, really important. So I think they should go through every single checklist and think about like, why is this person here and what is their background? Like, who, what is their story? Because that creates like a person and i think cartoon characters really are whole when they are especially for Asians when they are of asian descent but they are not limited to only such factor and they pave stories that are genuine and real and they show humanistic sides to them that go beyond physicality so they aren't one dimensional or made to make the protagonist look better but they are like genuinely trying to push forward um a story that is not just foreignness i think it's honestly just like thinking a little bit deeper about every character you create, and that's for all POCs to not just like slap one on because they feel like it's good, but to actually think about why this character exists as a character um, before you add in like before you add in like their different. I don't know. You, I think you need to acknowledge their different identities, but you can't let that overshadow them as a character. Yeah, definitely, um, and.
0: do you you think that we'll ever get to a place in Hollywood where there's like real diversity and not just like casting these token Asians or token black people or token minorities? Um, And do you, yeah, do you feel like we're also going to be at a place sometime in the future where people of colors, like characters, aren't whitewashed?
1: I think that's a really difficult question because, yeah, I think because we have such a history of it, it seems like when will we ever get out of it? But for me, in my perspective, I think it's about creating more content because when you have only like... This one black character or this one Latinx character, that is like the whole, that character is representing the whole community. But when you create more and more content, more and more people can choose to identify with what character that they want. So I think it allows us to feel more at level with the dominant group. But yeah, it is difficult because how do you like move on without acknowledging? I think this is like kind of loosely related and also not, but I was reading this book called Women on the Edge of Time, in which she basically reimagines this utopia, and this is like a true utopia where racism doesn't exist. And um, yeah, it sounds crazy, but they basically uh, grouped people by culture rather than like color. And the person that we were following, the protagonist, felt really uncomfortable because they were like, How could you not recognize the history of colorism? How could you just forget the pain that I went through to be able to get there? And I think there is that process of, like, if we can create enough content, right, and that platform starts to exist, then I think we all need to go through our own process of healing and our own process of, like, that generational, like, trauma of having um, caricatures placed onto our bodies and trying to grapple with, like, when can we move on and how do we do that in a way that is beneficial to, like, everybody.
0: For sure, yeah. Um, And do you, like, do you know of any sort of Asian characters who are coming up in, like, future movies or TV shows that you feel, like, embody good representation? Like, any ones that you are specifically excited about?
1: So personally, I'm really excited about Marvel's new Filipino heroine called Wave. She seems really cool, and I think she really epitomizes like what a cool character design is and what a good background like. Her character design is inspired by like an actress, a famous actress from the Philippines, and her weapon I think is like traditional Philippine, like a traditional Philippines weapon, and so there are like definitely nods to her heritage, but. At the same time she's like in this swimsuit or this wetsuit that fully covers her body which is kind of incredible and so i think there's like a lot of just like modern touches to her that show more than just her culture but also integrate it in a very nice way also i think netflix came out with the half of it and never have i ever i haven't watched that yet but i hear they're quite good so i think there really is like some front runners that other industries can start to think about and aspire toward. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm really excited. Yeah, I know that you mentioned Wave and I'm excited for that. And I haven't watched the half of it or never have I ever either. But from what I've heard, they seem pretty good. And I don't know, like just by watching the trailers and stuff, it seems like it is sort of a step forward. And I feel like Like, I get it. It's hard to sort of portray minorities if you're, like, a white director. And at the end of the day, also, we need to sort of uplift directors and producers um, and actors who are, like, people of color. So, like you said, they can sort of take control um, of their own creative content because I feel like... The entertainment industry can be super overwhelming, especially since it's very white in America. Um, so, yeah, I've been, but yeah, I've been thinking about uh, how how white the American entertainment industry is, and it's it's weird because it's like when people think of Hollywood, oftentimes we're like, oh yeah, like these actors and actresses, like they're super liberal. Um, They may be, they might be majority white, but they're super liberal. And like from their social medias, we see them supporting like Black Lives Matter and like supporting people of color. But at the end of the day, like there isn't diversity in Hollywood that definitely needs to change. Mm -hmm. But it's like, it's such a big industry that I'm just like, how do we, how do we change it? But I feel like there are like steps that that have been happening um, slowly but surely, but I do think it's going to be a long-term process.
1: Mm, I completely agree. I think I definitely want to be optimistic about it, but definitely recognize it's going to take a lot of like labor from the POC community. But at the same time, yeah, I don't think white directors should be able to get out of not creating POC characters just because they don't identify with that group. I think that's where like accountability is really important and like cultural competency like I think even if you are not of that group you can definitely learn their histories. There's books out there and there are people out there with real life experiences that if you don't have somebody in the room that is of the culture that you're trying to represent you can get people all across the world that are willing to help out like, that can be pedestrians, or that can be producers or writers. Um, and I think that is, like, really important to have those voices when you're doing your research process, when you're creating a show. And, yeah, I think it's really interesting, because I agree, when I think about Hollywood, I do think there are, like, a, I do think, that like, people that are quite liberal. But I think that is just about just holding yourself accountable to action rather than, like, words. I think social media, I think I have my own opinion about social media activism, but I think if you can stand up and there are like concrete ways for you to do something, I think that shows way more than just like something you tweet out. Definitely. And I think
0: at the end of the day, like right now, people of color should be empowered to, you know, go for your dreams like if you if you want to be in the entertainment industry like that's amazing like all the power to you but i feel like at the end of the day like we also need white allies i guess and like white people in the entertainment industry who are willing to sort of step aside and give these roles to people of color and um allow them to represent themselves
1: for sure. I think we definitely need to applaud our current POC actors and actresses and like directors for getting there in the first place and just the amount of like extra things they must do to get there. So that's a big part of it. But yeah, additionally, we really need those allies to keep people in those positions that are POC and get people there. I think I was thinking of this is kind of I feel like it's a little off topic. It's kind of related though, but I don't know if you know Kelly Marie Tran. She was a part of the Star Wars franchise more recently, and she was rep- she was an Asian actress that was representing this character. I personally don't know Star Wars, so I can't speak upon that. But after her um her debut as a actress in the show, and it's such a loved franchise, people got upset, so upset and sent so much hate towards her and they called her fat and they called her not like there's a whole she wrote um an article on the new york times and i highly recommend people checking it out but it really is just like brutal how people respond to even newcomers um who try to break into this industry that are poc and i think in times like that if you are like a white actor actress or um yeah, just anybody who says, like, I'm liberal, and I speak for these people, then that was the time to stand up and, like, say sorry, or stand up and be like, I'm with Kelly on this. So I think there are a lot of different ways for you to support your current um, role models in the industry that are POC, and also find ways to, yeah, like you said, step aside. Definitely. Wow. Um, yeah, Natalie, that. That's all the questions I
0: have, but we had such a good conversation. Um, Yeah, it's definitely made me think about a lot, and I sort of need to parse out these ideas a little more. But before I let you go, so at the end of every episode, I do a round of rapid fire questions just so the listeners can get to know you um, in a more fun and lighthearted context. So I'll just be asking you some quick rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I am. Thank All you right. so much. right, let's ready. do this. First question, what is your favorite class that you've taken at Andover?
1: Oh my gosh, that is so difficult. I've taken some really transformative classes in my senior year. I think I'm a big fan of English electives, so ugh, choosing just one is so hard. I think my women's lit class taught by Ms. Staff was just so good because it was so intersectional. And also um, African American lit taught by Dr. Samo taught me so much about capitalism and like the modern forms of slavery in this country. And I think that was really powerful uh, as well. So I would have to choose those two, but it's a hard pick. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: Next, what is your favorite Andover memory since you just graduated? I know it's 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 probably hard to choose just one Too but fair. you can you can name okay.
1: several. <laughs> oh gosh, I think there's so many memories that I cherish, but I think I'm going to get cheesy and I think every late night common room conversation in Stevens is probably some of my favorite memories. Stevens is just such a unique space. I don't think it's something I will experience again. And I think it's something... And in that way, I like really hold those memories super dear to my heart. I miss Stevens, too. Oh, my gosh. We miss you, too, Angelina. Come back. (laughs) Next.
0: um, What is your favorite memory from the entire
1: D process? That's hard, too. I think... My favorite is just, like, I think it's two parts. One is, like, all the other scholars, like, coming out and supporting one another. That was just super sweet to see, like, faces that have also gone through a similar process that you have and just have so much, like, love and respect for one another. I think that was really cool for me to see. And then also just, like, the conversations I was able to have with other adults in my life, uh, and especially, like, Asian women in my life, because honestly, I... Didn't really have much, many female role models in my life growing up because I lived with my dad. So it was just like super cool to talk to these women who are really passionate about social justice and were also like people that I feel like I identified with. So that was just like such an empowering part of the experience.
0: Yes, Asian women, like go on. All the way. <laughs> <laughs> and final question. Um, if you could say one thing to an aspiring Asian actor, actress out there, what would you say to them?
1: I think be bold and be confident in yourself. You are more than enough as you are and be your whole authentic self and go for it. Wise
0: words from Natalie. Yes. (laughs) Natalie, thank you so much for coming on to Homecoming. It was amazing to catch up with you and learn more about your research. And again, like I loved your presentation. I honestly feel like it was one of the most like engaging and interactive presentations I've ever gone to. So it was amazing. Um, Before I let you go though, any last things that you sort of want to mention Um, and also where can people find you Um, or maybe your presentation and paper and your research if they want to reach out to you?
1: Well, firstly, thank you so much for everything. It was just such a good time to be on here and I was so grateful to be invited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I miss you and I think we had like such an insightful conversation and it definitely made me see my own research in a new light. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for everything. Of course. And I guess you can find me on my Instagram. It's natalie.shhh. And you can also just email me if you want my paper presentation or anything else. So that would be natalie.shen.w at gmail.com. And yeah, just hit me up on social media. Feel free to DM me. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much, Natalie. It Thank you. It was so you. Good to have you. Hey, Homecoming listeners. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Homecoming podcast. Remember to check out our social media pages at Homecoming Pod on Instagram and Facebook for some behind the scenes content and to get to know our guests better. Also, make sure to give us those five stars on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this is the first of a three part CAMDI Scholar series I'll be releasing these next few weeks, so definitely stay tuned to hear about the amazing academic research these scholars have conducted. Next week, Tenzin Sharlung will be joining me to talk about her research on Southeast Asian refugees, and the week after that, Karen Sun will be coming on to talk about religious language in American presidential politics. So, thank you all again for your continued support and I'll catch you guys on the next episode.